So I would uh, like to offer this talk this evening <clears throat> as an expression of my appreciation of all of you and appreciation of uh, what you're doing here at the retreat. I believe that it's a very profound endeavor to come to retreat like this, be in the silence, and to practice mindfulness throughout the day. It's a very significant way of meeting oneself. And I believe that the world has a tremendous need for people who can really meet themselves in a very deep way, see themselves very deeply, and in themselves discover the Dharma. And I use the word Dharma here to meet the Dharma in ourselves. Uh, remembering that uh, in Buddhism, it said that the defining characteristic, the lakana, characteristic of the Dharma, is non-harming, is ahimsa. So to be able to meet oneself deeply enough to discover a phenomenal capacity for non-harming, phenomenal capacity for peace and well-being, and to be able to go into the world with that. And I know it's not easy here, and we meet the full spectrum of what human beings can experience here. Uh, there's a lot of struggle, there can be sadness and grief, there could be joys and delights, there could be unimaginable boredom. <laughs> And there can be an amazing surprise how quickly a day can go by. I've been on retreats where I thought, all we ever do is go eat. <laughs> just, you know, the time in between just kind of flew by. And I think it's not easy to really have a profound meeting of oneself. Another analogy I like to use a little bit is that of, um, of um, you know, you have a, a still, still, kind of clear mountain creek, and you look into the clear, shallow creek, and you uh, see the rocks through it, and you see the water but you don't see the water moving and you think maybe the water is standing still. When you take a, a little stick and you put it in vertically into that creek and you see a little wake formed at the edge of the, the stick and you see in fact the, the creek is actually flowing. Um, a retreat, a meditation session, trying to stay with your feet as you walk, being with your breath, is like a stick that we put in the, the creek of our life that flows. And there's all kinds of aspects of our life we didn't even know were flowing until we have that reference point. Or to say it a different way, um, uh, if a person is, uh, say, restless, and they're able to go to a dance party, they might not realize that they're restless, because all that restlessness has a channel and gets expressed and all that. And, but put the person down, sit down, and meditate, 
and it gets really highlighted how restless the person is. And the idea here is that it's really significant to see what's happening. So it's certainly significant to go, useful to go dancing, but to, to really sit and look at what motivates us, what drives us, um, and, uh, and to find a capacity not to be driven by all these inner forces around here inside of us, not be pushed around it by it, not to be influenced unduly by the things that can cause us harm or to diminish our life in some way. Uh, and certainly not to kind of give in to those things that ultimately can cause us harm or cause harm to others. So to meet ourselves and discover the Dharma here. And in offering this talk to you, and uh, I'd like to uh, 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 offer teachings on the core teaching that the Buddha had to teach, the heart of Buddhism in many ways. But I'd like to uh, lead up to it. And that's an ancient tradition in Buddhism, is you don't just uh, offer the deepest teachings just like that. <laughs> but uh, uh, there is some, some leading up to it to prepare the ground for it a little bit. So a little bit that's kind of what I'd like to do. And a little bit like um, uh, John offered this wonderful journey yesterday, uh, pilgrimage. So in this talk, and leading you to these teachings, I'd like to also think of it a little bit as either a pilgrimage or a little journey of discovery, and perhaps these different stations of discovery of areas would be useful for you um, to help meet yourself, understand yourself, and perhaps uh, become freer in the process. Eugene talked about uh, a quote read from the suttas, um, description of the Buddha's mind uh, just prior to his awakening described the mind to the Buddha as being malleable, wieldy, steady, and imperturbable. And I was wondering what the opposite of that is. Certainly opposite of steady is unsteady. Opposite of malleable is hard. Opposite of wieldy is but what came to my mind was stubborn. <laughs> but maybe there's you know, lots of other possible opposites. And imperturbable is, um, you know, what's the opposite of that? Uh, imperturbable means to be, the opposite would be to be perturbed, to be troubled, to be agitated. In my mind, I think of it as being kind of pushed around by cause and conditions, uh, having no stability uh, in the midst of all the changes of, that go on. But I also, to put them all together, I think of a mind that's kind of hard, fixated, stuck. And so, if we start looking at how the mind gets stuck and fixated, um, uh, and I take hey, kind of the widest, one of the possible wider kind of beginning points for that, maybe the wider circle of the onion in a sense, um, I'm thinking about um, the views and opinions, stories, beliefs with which we hold our life, hold our purpose of our life, what we're doing with our life, what we think life is all about. And um, you've come to a Buddhist center, you're listening to a Buddhist teacher. And so Buddhism has a whole set of beliefs and teachings. Some of you have heard teachings and beliefs 
of other religions and have grappled with them or struggling a little bit, some of you, with other teachings and the teachings of Buddhism and all that. And, and I find it in, very uh, uh, powerful uh, uh, sutta, the discourse that the Buddha gave, called the Kalama Sutta. And there's two parts to it. And what's usually taught is the first part. And people forget they don't, uh, don't teach the second part. So today I'm going to uh, teach both parts. So the, the part that's well known is that um, the Buddha came to the town of people called the Kalamas. And um, the Buddha was at that point traveling through. He was a traveling spiritual teacher. Like, and, they, and they said to him, look, there's a lot of traveling spiritual teachers that come through here. You know, you're just one of many. So rather than asking the Buddha, you know, what do you have to teach? They asked him something much more interesting. They said, how, among all these different teachers that come through and all these teachings we hear, how do we ascertain what is true? Isn't that a good one? And here, you know, our, our modern society uh, sometimes referred to as a spiritual supermarket. And there's so many different beliefs that we have to, we don't have to, but we negotiate and are put in our face and claims about this and that. And how do we know? How do we find what's true? And what the, what the Buddha said in response um, is a very, very powerful challenge to the way that most people hold their hold beliefs, religious beliefs in particular. It's a challenge to the authority upon which people hold spiritual, religious, and other beliefs. It's a questioning upon what authority we hold the beliefs that we have. And many people don't question the authority. Often certain beliefs are received from growing up through family and society, and some things come through teachers, and just well, a teacher must be true. After all, the person's a teacher, so must be true. So, but no questioning. How, how's, how can this be true? So the Buddha said in response, um, don't go by reports, by legends, by tradition, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement with your views. by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. So right now, I'm the, I'm the contemplative, you know, so you might think, oh, he's the teacher, so I'm supposed to just kind of go along with whatever he says. The Buddha says, don't do that. Isn't that great? I like to think of my job as being, my job, one part of my job is to talk myself out of a job. But some of these things are, um, you know, uh, this, uh, the, the, the source of authority for many people's religious uh, or wor their worldview. Their uh, uh, tradition is a common one. Just a tradition is part of my family, part of my society. It's just the way it's always been this way. And it isn't questioned, it's just received. Um, scripture. I'm going to read from Scripture in a little while, Buddhist Scripture. 
But, um, as I'm doing right now, I did this just now. But uh, um, why is scripture held up in such high authority? Is it it's so special and powerful? And even Buddhist scripture, you know, Buddhist teachers will quote it left and right as if this is the authority, the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha said, don't go by it. <laughs> and then we read, we, we read that. <laughs> <laughs> and don't go just simply because it agrees with your views or goes along with your preferences or inference or intuition. It just seems right. It just feels right. So in my thinking, this pulls the rug from underneath most of the uh, um, authority that upholds many, many people's views they have. Now, perhaps none of you are burdened by fixed worldviews, opinions, are not struggling with religious points of view about what's true and not true. But there, I'm sure that there's a lot of stories beliefs that operate for you anyway. Beliefs about what you should do to be a successful person, what you shouldn't do. Uh, beliefs by which you define yourself as being right or good or bad. Beliefs about um, uh, what you deserve and don't deserve. Um, beliefs about what uh, uh, should happen and shouldn't happen. And uh, these beliefs can be very, very deeply seated within us. Um, so, for example, when I was a new practitioner in my early 20s, one of my uh, deep beliefs that um, was unquestioned, was, this is just, was probably the way the universe was constructed, was that um, uh, I was guilty. <laughs> of what? <laughs> you know, it didn't matter what. <laughs> I was just inherently guilty. Um, you know, Gil was short for guilt. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really remarkable to, you know, I would uh, walk into like to a meditation hall where I really see it, and I could just feel guilty about the way I walked across the floor. That was enough to make it tr trigger it, or how I opened and closed the doors, you know, just, of course I was doing it the wrong way. And... Um, and there was no questioning of that belief. I mean, this was just how it was, right? But upon what authority supported that belief? You know, was it true? How do I know it was true? Isn't it at some point, shouldn't we start questioning the validity of some of the things we believe about ourselves and what goes on? What are the beliefs that support your suffering? Do you know what it, you know what it is? And I suspect there's a whole slew of things which you've inherited from family and society and teachers in many places. Some of it, who knows where it all comes from. I remember, you know, when we're, when we're young, there's, there's, you know, we can deeply be imprinted and, and be told things about ourselves and then just believe that's the way the universe is constructed. So like when my seventh grade teacher told me that I, that I, have, I had no artistic ability I didn't care if I had any artistic ability. It wasn't an interest of mine. But she, she told me that I didn't have any, so it must be true. And for the next six years, I believed that and operated as, as if that was true. It didn't bother me because I wasn't looking for it, but it was kind of interesting how that was held in place for so, six years. And um, 
So, so to begin you know, to sit still enough here, we start seeing where we get hung up, where we get stuck. And then, and then to be, put a question mark after all these things. Is this really so? Is it really true? Are these, why do I have these beliefs? What are these beliefs based on? So it's not just kind of wide, big worldviews and religious views, but there's some very personally held views that really, uh, uh, for, around which we orient our whole lives sometimes, that deserve to be questioned and looked at. And do some of these come from scripture, tradition, inference, preference, and these things? And if those aren't reliable, if my teachers are not ultimately reliable, I can't really go by my teachers, if I can't really go by the scriptures, if I can't really go by tradition, then what can you go on? Are you left kind of floundering and drifting? And So the Buddha then continued, and he said, paraphrase slightly, when you know for yourself, and many people stop right there, when you know for yourself, so he said, you're supposed to know for yourself, it's your own experience, then you should know. And sometimes, some people don't continue the quote, but that does a tremendous disservice to what the Buddha was teaching, and to you as well, because we can't just rely on what we think we know. Because knowing, you know, the fact that we know it doesn't mean that it's true. My favorite kind of uh, example of this was, um, uh, you know, people have these, uh, some people have these near-death experiences, and it's a relatively common uh, pattern for people to see a tunnel with light in the end, and sometimes they go through the tunnel and they see some, uh, something really wonderful at the other end. Uh, they can see Jesus, they can see the Buddha, Krishna, some, something really, you know, some very powerful figure. And if you grew up, you know, if you were a Buddhist your whole life and you saw the Buddha at the end of the tunnel, you know, that's pretty significant. You know, you finally see the Buddha. So they, they studied uh, children in New York City in the 1980s who had near-death experiences. And in fact, they had a high percentage of them had near these same kind of tunnel things. And at the end of the tunnel, they saw the ninja, ninja turtles. <laughs> so I can imagine there are people who see Buddha and say, that, you know, I finally saw the real Buddha. That's it. My experience, I know I really saw the Buddha waiting for me in heaven or whatever. But, you know, perhaps that Buddha was just a, a creation of the mind in the same way the Ninja Turtles were for those kids. And so you say, I, you know, I really saw the Buddha. It has to be questioned. You know, how do you, to question our experience and not necessarily believe our experience. Everything we see is not necessarily how it is. So, but what is reliable? So the Buddha, so some people stop that quote right there, but that does a disservice. When you know for yourself, these qualities, these things that I do are unskillful. These things, when undertaken and carried out, lead to harm and suffering. Then you should abandon them. When you know for yourself that these qualities are skillful, then when these things are taken and carried out, lead to your welfare, 
then you should do them and maintain them. So the criteria here is what is it that leads to your welfare and what leads to your harm? And that is something that you can know directly for yourself. To come to some grand conclusion about what you're seeing there, you have to be very careful. But it's so simple and so basically human, the capacity to recognize that we're suffering or that we're happy. In, 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 in relationship to grand religious philosophies and ideas, it can seem maybe inconsequential to base one's religious life on recognizing, being able to recognize where is harm and where is welfare. But that relates at the heart of what the Buddha was pointing at. And it points to something that we're supposed to be able to experience and see and know for ourselves directly. Because if we know that for ourselves directly, we can use that as a guide to find our way away from harm, from suffering, and find a path to greater and greater welfare and happiness. Not only for ourselves, but for a world that has a great need for that as well. So then, uh, you know, what the Buddha taught was his pragmatic skills, pragmatic approaches to, to to do that, to, to, to follow that path that leads to welfare, to happiness, to peace. Something that's immediately experienceable. Whereas there are things which, um, like for example, some people's uh, idea of ultimate religious experience is, you know, I can't really go list through a whole, whole bunch of them. But if you start analyzing carefully the beliefs, the assumptions that go behind those ideas, it's very easy to pull the rug from under them or start doubting them. But you can't, you don't doubt suffering. It's clear. I hope it's clear. <laughs> and, you know, and, and you don't doubt the peace and the freedom from suffering. It's very pragmatic and immediate. So that's the first half of the Kalama Sutta. Kind of maybe lofty, maybe philosophical, maybe but you know, heady, you know, the second half has to do with love. Isn't that nice? The part that's left out? <laughs> uh, the Buddha then gives, um, kind of gives an example of how you can know for yourself, what you can know for yourself. And he gives the example using um, a description of the practice of loving kindness. When you develop loving kindness to a very strong degree, it's really established well, the heart, the mind, kind of is radiant with loving-kindness. And can you, when you have a heart and mind radiant with loving-kindness, is that for your harm or is that for your welfare? Can you feel the harm in that or can you feel how that's beneficial? I think you can see that directly for yourself. And then he goes on to say, um, when you have a heart filled with loving-kindness, you can have a, a number of unusual translations is a number of assurances. And I'll, I'll simplify the, the, the description a little bit, but so, so there's two assurances you can have. One is that if there is a next lifetime for you, if there are more lifetimes, not, then 
if you're if you're filled with loving kindness, that will care that that will influence how you get reborn, and you'll have a beneficial rebirth. And then the Buddha said, but if there is no future lives, if, you know, if there is no rebirth, isn't that nice? So you don't have to believe in rebirth. If there is none, then you'll have a happy life here and now. So I always thought it was a little bit strange that he would have this, you know, start talking about future lifetimes as the proof, you know, of what's beneficial or harmful, the loving-kindness practice. But then I looked up the, in the Pali Dictionary the word for assurance, and this was great. The, the, the word that's translated as assurance literally is literally, what literally says is um, uh, breathe easy. You can breathe easy. And breathing easy, assurance is kind of abstract, but breathing easy is not abstract. That's something physical and immediate that you can experience. And from that, I've learned how you, I mean, I've learned many ways, but what is really highlighted, what a great teacher your breathing is. To be able to have a breath which is easy and relaxed. And then to be able to notice when you lose that easy breath, when it gets constricted and tight. What a great teacher. Because then, when you lose your easy breath, you can stop and ask yourself, for what was I willing to sacrifice that easeful breath? And that, I think, is a profound question. For what are you willing to sacrifice your easeful breath? So, for example, you sit here all morning long, you have a wonderful sitting, perhaps, one of those, and the lunch bell goes off, end of the sitting, it's time to go down to lunch, and you start, you're so feel so relaxed and wonderful, and, and you make it down the hill, and, you, and it turns out to be a long line, and you can smell baked potatoes. And after a while, you notice you're not breathing so relaxed anymore because you're concerned. Is there going to be enough baked potatoes for me? And better get on here. You know, I better figure out a way to get in there. So you're sacrificing the easeful breath for your desire for potato. But there's probably, you know, much more significant things but to, you know, is that really worth it? Is it really worth sacrificing it for those potatoes? Now, if you're Norwegian, probably it is. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, to, to question these, but to question these things. And so what are you willing to sacrifice your easeful breath? One of the things that I had to confront in my monastic uh, period of practice, I, I, it was like put right in my face. So it was so much in my face; it hurt so much. It, only because it hurt so much, did I, was I finally able to see it. And sometimes, you know, I was, I'm kind of slow, so it, I had to suffer a lot. And my thing was, I was 
completely obsessed, neurotically obsessed with wanting everyone to like me. That is not a happy way to live. And I would do all these social gymnastics, you know, to try to make it work out. And I had a job in the monastery that um, generally no one liked, and liked the person who had that job. <laughs> it, it was the kitchen manager. <laughs> and um, so I had to, um, you know, so I got a lot of opportunity to look and uh, got to see how it affected my breathing, how it affected my, my body, my tension, all kinds of things. And was I willing to sacrifice my well-being for this concern about whether people liked me or not? And eventually, because, I, because there was so much suffering involved, I realized it was not worth it. And so then I was willing to let go, or start letting go. And uh, it was a very important transition in my life, was to not be, to let go of that concern and let people think what they want of me and realize that I can breathe easily, even if they don't like me. Isn't that nice? So for what do you sacrifice your easy breath? So that's a very immediate and practical reference point for meeting ourselves, understanding ourselves, questioning ourselves. And perhaps you'll come to something that you say, yes, it's worth it. But then you can maybe do it with great <coughs> deliberation or care, or really know what you're doing. Or perhaps there's a whole slew of things you discover is not worth it. I would like to suggest to you that your easeful, relaxed breath is a really precious, really precious resource you have. And how can you use that as your teacher? So Eugene talked about breathing with things, breathing with difficulties, whatever's going on. And to breathe with and know what you're, what's happening with your breathing as you do various things, you can track and notice when you tighten up. And if you notice it, then if you feel like it's appropriate, you can, you can maybe adjust that. You can relax, soften, take a deeper breath. A relaxed breath is the great lubricator kind of lubricates the life, makes it, things a lot easier. It's a lot harder to get, to get the, the mind to get locked up if the breathing is relaxed. So don't go by scripture, by reports, by teachers, <coughs> but perhaps you can go by your breathing. So try it out and see how far you can go with your breath. So as we sit here, some of you will encounter beliefs, opinions, stories that you've carried with you consciously or unconsciously and can feel them as being limiting. And it's very important to be able to question it. And you can maybe feel how limiting because sometimes it keeps the mind tight. There's very little you need to believe when you sit on retreat. And so perhaps, how much can you let go of? How much can you soften? So that's kind of like a shell, the world of belief that 
we can perhaps puncture and question. And then in the process of doing that, come in closer to ourselves. Because the way in which beliefs and stories and opinions, when we're caught up in them, take us away from ourselves, keep us removed. And in fact, the reason why I started this way was I feel that somehow uh, being caught up in all these concepts and ideas and beliefs can keep us very far removed from ourselves. Part of what we're doing here, I believe, or the language I like, is learning to come home to ourselves. And sometimes I use the mental note, come home, come home here, come back. So then closer in, as we get closer in from the more abstract world, beliefs perhaps, closer in, there's another uh, kind of shell that is important to crack and penetrate that also keeps us removed from ourselves. And that's uh, famous uh, uh, forces of the mind that we often teach about called the hindrances. And um, the hindrances, uh, I think of them as forces in the mind that are very much caught up in objects, something out there. It's really clear with the first two, with desire and ill will. When you have very strong desire, you want some, the object of your desire. If you have really strong ill will, you have some very have animosity towards some object, a thing or a person. So, for example, I could be sitting here in the hall, and you know these zafus. You sit long enough, they feel like concrete, and so there might arise a desire for some, you know softer zafu, maybe velvet cover. And I could start fantasizing about how to design the perfect, soft, cushy, you know, velvet, air pockets. You know, and, and the desire for comfort and pleasure takes over, and I'm completely involved in that fantasy of desire. And I lose, I'm focused out there, in a sense out there, on that object and that, that, that concern. There can be sexual desire. And so then again, usually it's focused on someone else. And, you know, it's the object out there. There could be food desires, the object out there. There could be ill will, the person over there, that this and that. You know, rather than designing the perfect zafu, it's designing the perfect way of sacrificing, slaughtering your zafu. <laughs> you know, just really, just, you know, just really has tremendous hostility to that topic where the seam goes and you know, it just digs in. And um, so, so you know, again, the object. <clears throat> and um, when we're caught up in, in uh, the hindrances like this, we lose ourselves in the object because we're focusing so much outwards. And if we want to come home, if we want to come back, find our home in our breathing, find our home in ourselves, There's a very important movement that needs to happen when the hindrances are up. And that is, not necessarily to let go or dismiss the hindrances, push them away or decide they're bad, you shouldn't be that kind of person who has a hindrance. No need for that. But there's a very powerful movement, and that is to take your attention and turn it around 180 degrees 
away from the object to focus on the subject, on you. Rather than focusing on the object desire, you turn around and feel and notice what it's like to be desiring. You turn around and look and feel what it's like to be ill-willing. You feel the heat, the tightness, the contraction, the speeding mind, the, the tightening of the mind, the darkening perhaps of the mind that goes on with that kind of preoccupation. Um, you can kind of feel what it's actually like. And if you do that, you're coming home. You're coming home to something that's uncomfortable, <laughs> but you're coming home, you're coming and noticing what's here. Because when, and that is the, uh, what we try to do in mindfulness. It's a path, where mindfulness opens up and we come back to the direct experience we're having as opposed to the way we project out beyond the experience. And the wonderful thing about turning 180 degrees around, as I said earlier, we don't have to reject anything. We have to kind of or decide that or judge that I'm bad, it's bad, it shouldn't be that way. It's okay to have desire. It's okay to have ill will when we sit here. But you can turn around and just feel it. When there's fear, Fear is very easy to be caught up in the object of fear. Or sometimes it's a nebulous object. But what's it like to turn around and feel what it's like to be fearing in real time, here and now? Sometimes fears are about things that are far away, different times. Why do we give so much authority to the future? I put a question mark behind that. Why do you give so much authority to the past? How many of you have reviewed your past trying to come up with a better past? You know, if only I had a better rejoinder, if only I had done that and said this and that. Why give so much authority to the past? You don't have to stop thinking about the future and the past, but can you turn the attention 180 degrees around to feel here and now in the living present what it's like to be a person who is futuring or pasting. What's that like? Then you're present. If you know you're futuring, you're present. If you know you're pasting, you're present. And then the door of mindfulness opens up. So the other hindrances like uh, restlessness and anxiety, sloth and torpor, can it can sometimes a very powerful uh, uh, stimu very powerful stimulus to again be focusing on objects, ideas, concepts. Restlessness is often there's something we're concerned with. Sloth and torpor, we just kind of drift off sometimes. Sometimes there's resistance that's part of it, resisting something. To turn around and just feel fully and completely what it's like to feel lethargy. What does it feel like in the cheeks, in the shoulders, in the brain? So again, always turning back home to the subject. What's this like here? The Buddha referred to, um, he said, um, uh, what I call the world is his fathom long body. Very interesting statement. What I call the world is a fathom long body. I believe he said that because 
the way that we experience the world is always mediated through this body, through our eyes and ears and nose and tongue and body. We abstract from that and we abstract huge and project huge abstract worlds, some of which are useful and some which are phenomenally unuseful. But to really know where the world begins, you have to come back to your body, to where the contact is made here. And so it's always coming home to our felt sense experience, the immediacy here. That's really where the lived life is found. That's really where, if you're really going to find deep, the deeper kind of wellsprings of the Dharma, of peace and even of meaning in life, You'll find it here, in this body, through this body, through your breathing, the easy breath. It's an amazing wellspring of life can flow out of that, that can't come out of it if we're removed and abstract in the future and the past, objectifying, concerned with objects out there. So we come back closer and closer, come home here. And as we get closer to the immediacy of our experience and see how it's kind of occurring moment by moment, arising and passing, being constructed by moment by moment, start seeing more subtle ways that the stream is flowing that maybe you wouldn't see if you're busy and actively involved. And perhaps you start seeing the subtle ways, very subtle ways in which uh, the mind moves, the heart moves for things and against things for pleasure against discomfort. The mind kind of moves a lot, wanting this, not wanting that, wanting a little different, manipulating, trying to make it a little different. And as long as the mind is trying to manipulate and change and tinker with experience, it hasn't really found the deepest home that's possible. So then we also have to look and be present, hold in awareness the tinkering mind. The mind is moving and wanting and fixing and trying and this and that, questioning, evaluating, assigning meaning, waiting for something to happen, wanting something to happen, hoping something doesn't happen. All this movement and activity. Come home. Come home. Put that to rest. Come closer, come deeper, come home. Let the mind become stiller. Let the awareness become stiller so that the flow, as Sharda talked about, the flow of experience, flow of immediate experience can just move through us. I'm fond of the fact that the word emotion, uh, it comes from the Latin root E, uh, prefix E, which means out, and motion, which means motion. Emo- emotions want to move out. They want to move. All emotions are processes. And they'll move through us unless we fixate or hold them or lock them up. Like resentment is frozen anger. And so when we come home and just hold things in awareness when there's a lot of emotions Come home in the body, feel the emotions in the body. 
it's really helpful because often there's strong emotions, there can be stories connected to them. And if they're stories, we're into the abstract world. And we lose our home. But if you can feel the emotions in the body, it's a way of not getting swept away in the story. But more important, to be mindful of an emotion in the body, to feel it in the belly, or the chest, and the face, or wherever it might be, is kind of like giving it space, giving it breathing room, so that it has some space to begin to kind of show itself, show what, it's, what's, what it is, and begin to move, begin to complete the process it needs to go through. So part of what we do when we come home is to allow for this processing. Our life is all process. Can we hold the awareness in the mind still enough to allow that process to go unimpeded? We don't interfere with it. If the emotions need to get stronger, allow them to get stronger. Let irritation turn into rage if that's what it wants to do. Let fear turn into love if that's what it wants to do. Whatever it needs to do, just let it go. So come home and begin trusting home. Begin trusting that it's okay to let this inner life, the immediacy of this life here, this experience, to move through us and flow as we stay present. As we move, move away from kind of the abstraction and object, objectification of life, things out there and ideas, and come closer and closer, there's more possibility for trusting the lived life, the immediacy of here and now. As we get closer to home, closer, deeper into the home, what are the other kind of currents that we can see in our stream? Is um, has to do with self. The way in which we, we can kind of have an experience and we're referring it to self to me, myself, and mine. There's an experience, even something very immediate here, very close in, physical, it's moving, it's flowing, but we claim it to be my, my experience. And we can start seeing how there's, a, there's how the me, myself, and my of the experience is extra, it's not really needed. And not only that, you can also then study and see what consequence it has to add my after our experience. So a great place to see that is with pain. So like if your knee hurts, uh, you might experiment with uh, what it feels like to, f- what it's like to feel the knee pain if you say my pain versus the pain. And sometimes you can feel a shift. My pain, it can feel much more oppressive. The pain, it doesn't feel so personal. And it can be a little easier to hold. My sadness versus the sadness. Sadness is sadness. Is it necessary to overlay it with the word mine? What consequence does it have to have mine? Is it possible that adding mine actually is an abstraction? It takes you away from the experience rather than more connected, more free with it. Or we refer the experience to some idea of who we are. You know, I need to be successful, I need to do it right, 
I need to find the right thing. I have to have the right kind of breath, me, myself, and mine. You know, it's rather, I'm in California, you're supposed to have a long, deep, relaxed breath. <laughs> and my breath is shallow and tight. And Gil's talking about having an easeful breath. I just don't understand what he's talking about. This is not working for me. I must be a meditation disaster. <laughs> it's all about me, myself, and mine. So one of the things we question is the authority of all the self-referential movements we do. Do we need to do all that? We need to refer everything to ourselves all the time. Some of you, some of us, I've been quite humbled by how much self-referential garbage goes on in my mind. Maybe none of you it's garbage, but it's really amazing. There's this beautiful discourse, the teaching of the Buddha. Now that I, I'm not supposed to teach from the scriptures. The Buddha talks about, um, these, says that these are, these are unwise ways of paying attention. Um, it's not wise to pay attention through the view self exists for me or the view no self exists in me or the view I perceive self with self or I perceive not self with self um, or, I, or with the view um, Oh, uh, so also one attends unwisely by considering was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? <laughs> or else one re remains inwardly perplexed about the present, present moment in the following way. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where have I come from? Where am I going? It's a lot of selfing. Very self-referential. So what's, what's left? If you're not going to do all that thinking about self and figuring out who you are and where you're going and all this stuff, what's left? There's certainly a very important place in life to find out who you are, to know where you come from, to have some sense of where you're going. Don't want to dismiss that out, off, out completely, completely. But there's also a time and place to be able to put it all down. And as we sit here on retreat, I would like to propose to you, there's very little selfing needed. There's very little need to know who you are who you're going to become. You can breathe easily. You can just be present. So that kind of, so at some point as we get still enough, different people, it's at different times, but at some point we start seeing how much wind drag in the present moment there is with all the selfing, self-referential language, concerns. How am I doing? What's going on here about me?
So if we can't think about ourselves, <laughs> what can we do? So, so we can let go of that concern. And if we don't have it, and, if, and then if it's just experience happening with no one having the experience, if there's awareness of the experience and no one having the awareness, there's just, there's just this. There's just this. The Buddha said it a little differently. He said, it's just us. It's just us. And that experience, coming home, coming so home, a place that's so home that the sense of self falls away. Just as for some of you, a lot of the ways in which you're concerned about selfing fall away when you come to your, into your physical home. Outside the home, you, 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 know, you don't want to pick your nose in public. But at home, it's okay. Because you don't care. So we come sit here quietly, still. Very little is needed of you. You don't need to... So to turn into what's happening, you don't have to push anything away. You know, this, this talk is not saying that you're not supposed to, that, that not saying that you're not supposed to be having what experience you're having. But it's encouraging you to turn into that experience and feel it and sense it as a subject. Be present for it here. Be curious. And as you kind of go deeper into it, at some point you might see that you can shed, like a, like a skin, like a snake grows and sheds its skin. You can shed that kind of, that's all the self, selfing, the sense of self. And awareness can reside without any boundaries. The awareness has no center, but also having no center has no edges. And in a sense, awareness is that which holds our experience. Awareness holds it all. Where else can it be for you but in your awareness? And the experience of freedom in Buddhism, the profound experience of non-harming or of peace, has to do when there's, there's a release of all the things that we hold on to. And if we're holding on to self, the ideas of self, freedom involves letting go of that. And that provides a very different reference point for living our life than the reference point of always holding on. So then, now that it's one minute after the talk's supposed to be over, I get to the main theme of the talk. <laughs> so, um, you know, the heart of what Buddha had to teach. The Buddha experienced freedom. He was able to let go of his attachment to views and opinions, his attachment to hindrances, his attachments to preferences and fors and against things, his clinging to self, 
He was able to set his awareness, his heart free. And that gave him a vantage point from which to understand, a reference point. And that reference point that he saw is described in the traditions as the truths of the noble ones, the Buddha being a noble one, the truths of the noble one. And usually in English, the word Aryasacha, it's translated as the noble truths. There's the four noble truths. But in the, in the history of Theravada Buddhism, the preferred way of understanding the, the grammar of Aryasacha, it refers to the, the um, truths of the noble ones. Those who have attained freedom, this is how they see. They see the four truths. They see, and I'll paraphrase the four truths for you. They see that if you cling, you will suffer. And if you let go of that clinging, that suffering goes away. If you cling, imagine if you have a mind, a heart, which is free, at peace, at ease, settled on itself. And you can feel the arising of clinging, grasping to something. And you can feel how that clinging brings suffering. And you can see how releasing that clinging, that suffering gets released as well. That is the heart of what the Buddha was teaching. And he saw it the night of his awakening. When he, that awakened mind, what it sees, it doesn't see God, it doesn't see the beginning of the cosmos, it doesn't see cosmic consciousness, it doesn't see oneness with nature, it doesn't see the true self. That freedom, that free heart, when it can see directly and immediately in the lived experience, it can see these four truths of the noble ones. You can see that if you cling, you will suffer. And if you let go of that clinging, that suffering is released. And so it's possible here on this retreat to begin feeling our way into the present moment, deeper and deeper ways, so that we begin questioning the ways that we cling and begin feeling it and turning our attention and noticing the clinging and, and begin the process of freeing ourselves from it. Or begin the process of discovering how this is true for ourselves as well. And this is something that's immediate, direct, not speculative, not opinions and views and philosophy, but something that's tied to your direct experience that arises out of being at home. So at home that you disappear.
let's um, sit for about a minute so that I could add one last teaching from the Buddha into the silence. Nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.